Welcome to Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff, where we interview newsmakers, storytellers, and all-around interesting people. Sit back, relax, uh, unless you're driving, and enjoy the show. Here's Jackson. Hello, hello, hello. I am Jackson Huff. This is Not in a Huff. Thanks so much for joining me. Appreciate it as always. Today, you're in for, for definitely a, a treat. Um, I guess if you're if you're into true crime type things, I am interviewing Sheriff Congressman Dave Reichert. Now he was a congressman in Washington State. He was the sheriff of King County. But uh, what we're going to mainly focus on today, we're going to talk about his life. But we're going to focus on a very very big case that he was a, a huge part of, and that is the Green River Killer case and uh, the capture of Gary Ridgway. Now, if you don't know, the Green River is one of, if not the most prolific serial killer cases in the United States, and that is largely because it encompassed so many victims, so many murders, so many women's lives cut very short. Um, he killed, the, the, I mean, they're not exactly sure, but they were able to convict him of 49 murders, and uh, they think there's a, a good uh, good 20 more. So definitely one of the, 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 like I said, one of the biggest serial killers in um, you know, the history of the United States. So, of course, this this uh, episode is is one that I think a lot of people will have interest in. A lot of people um, are interested in true crime and and uh, hearing the backstory. That's certainly what you're going to get today. But uh, if if it's not something that you you typically like listening to or that you're comfortable listening to, I do want to let you know this is definitely um, you know, a powerful story, a story of of triumph on the end. They did catch. Uh, Gary Ridgway after 19 years, um, but uh, it, it's it's a uh, like I said it's a story of triumph because they did catch him, but a lot of terrible things happened in the interim. You know, all these lives lost, a lot of struggle. Um, you know, with with the police in in catching him, some struggles with the community in it taking as long as it did to catch him. Um, but I, I also want to kind of just mention that. You know, given the nature of this, this is a, a very graphic episode. You know, we we do the best we can. I do the best I can, um, not to to make it too graphic. You know, we we stay pretty scientific with it, but uh, there, there's definitely going to be a lot of of talk about violence, um, about you know the anatomy of of women that were found and exactly how they were found. Um, many naked, many with with different injuries and, and things that uh, were, you know, lodged in them. Um, so I just want uh, you to be aware of that. If that's something that, that you are um, uncomfortable with, this is kind of just that warning beforehand. Other thing I want to mention is that if you've listened to this podcast a lot, you'll know that all of these episodes are under an hour long. I do my best to, to keep the stories succinct, um, and uh, normally I, I, I do a pretty good job of that. I don't think that we, we cut anything out that, uh, that takes away from the story and, and learning about the person I'm interviewing. 
this story I couldn't I couldn't cut. You know, I thought that it would be doing a disservice to you to cut out very much of it. I did cut out, you know, minor minor things and and some things I decided that that uh, weren't uh, flowing with with the story. Um, but I, you know, I, I didn't think that I should cut out, you know, a, a good twenty minutes just to to keep it under an hour. I wanted this story to be told because it's a powerful one. So. Without further ado, you know, I've talked enough. This is already a, a really long episode, but it's a powerful one. It really is. Just to hear the, uh, you know, the, the, the person who, who spent a, a good part of his life trying to catch a serial killer that many people um, know about that uh, has any interest in true crime or just was alive during the... 80s and 90s and and knew about this case that was was not solved for a long time so again without further ado here is my interview with sheriff former congressman former lead investigator of the green river killer dave reichert i am here today with former king county sheriff and former member of congress dave reichert dave how are you I'm good. Thank you. Good to be Absolutely. with you. Yeah. And I want to make sure you told me before we started to call you Dave. I wouldn't generally do that, um, but uh, I appreciate the, I guess, kind of the, the casual nature here. But yeah, it was, it was great to, to, to uh, get you and I really appreciate you joining me. Yeah. No, you're welcome. Very good. Yeah. So I guess I want to kind of start out, you know, at, at the beginning. We don't have to go all the way back to, to childhood, but are you, you, know, you, you represented Washington. Um, are you a, a, a Washington native? No, I was born in uh, Detroit Lakes, Minnesota, but my parents left there when I was a year old, came to Washington State. I got gotcha, you. I got gotcha. you. And you've lived kind of in that, that King County area? Yes. Yep. Gotcha. And for those who don't know, you know, Washington, we're talking about the state of Washington and King County is where Seattle is, correct? Yes. Yeah, Seattle was the, is the county seat for mm-hmm. For King County. I got you. Very good. My office was in downtown Seattle. Yeah. So, you know, we're just talking about your, your titles just a minute ago. You've obviously been involved in law enforcement. You've been involved in politics. And that's taking you to some, some pretty interesting places. You know, in the research that I've done, I guess I kind of want to start with your um, journey in law enforcement and to ask you what, what got you, uh, I guess, interested in, uh, in being in that field. Yeah, I, I, uh, so when you ask that question, it leads right to my, my uh, childhood. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so I'll, uh, I'll, I'll try to make, uh, make it quick and hopefully it makes uh, sense to your listeners. Um, I'm the oldest of seven. I, I grew up, uh, in East, uh, Renton, which is just Southeast of Seattle. I grew up in a house, um, with domestic violence. And, um, and so it was sort of a rough upbringing, seven kids in a two bedroom house, um, five boys and two girls, the the boys slept in the garage. Uh, we didn't have enough room for everyone. And, um, I, later I ran away from home, uh, when I was a senior in high school. So that sort of sets the, I was the protector for my brothers and sisters and sort of the protector for some of the smaller kids in the neighborhood. It was enough was a really rough neighborhood. Um, I grew up uh, fighting in the neighborhood that I grew up in. And, um, and, and so um, 
I, I was already sort of, I, I wasn't a bully, obviously I wasn't a very big guy, but I just couldn't stand to see people mistreated or bullies take advantage of my friends and my brothers and sisters. And so I sort of grew up as a protector and I think it naturally led into um, law enforcement. The second thing uh, that I recognized about myself at an early age is that I always wanted to help people. Always had this drive to be helpful uh, to solve problems, and so I recognized that in my early younger years. And um, I knew by the time I was in high school, uh, I was pretty sure that I wanted to go into a field where I was helping people, and I was really drawn to to law enforcement. So um, I, I went to two years of college uh, in Portland. I was asked to come and play football and basketball at Concordia Lutheran. University in Portland. Uh, after that, got married, joined the Air Force, um, did about six, seven months active duty, um, and uh, came out and immediately took the sheriff's test and and passed it. There's a long story with, with that experience too, but um, passed the test and got hired, and that's how I started my law enforcement career. Yeah, and around what year was that? 1972, got hired in February of 72. 72, okay. So again, in, in kind of researching you, one one story that I want to hear based off of your, your early years in the Sheriff's Department, I believe it happened in the 70s, but tell us about getting your, your throat slashed. Yeah, I, I uh, on patrol, uh, was um, uh, so... Um, I was called the shit magnet. Um, <laughs> so, uh, there are those police officers where you just happen to be in the right place at the right time. It's like playing football and there's a fumble, you know, and the ball is, is right there for, for a lot of the guys that played ball. Um, so uh, I caught a lot of crooks and uh, I had, I've had guns pulled on me, but this one was um, a man was trying to kill his wife. He had her by the throat with a butcher knife. I snuck in a back bedroom window, rushed him, and was able to free her and save her. I ended up in a wrestling match with him and fell over the coffee table in the living room and lost track of the knife. He jumped on top of me and just began slashing away with a butcher knife. And he, he slashed me three times across the throat um, from the back all the way to the front and then again on the side and then in the front. And then the, the last uh, effort he made to kill me was bringing the knife straight down uh, to stab it into my um, Adam's apple. And I was able to catch the knife just before it went in. I have a small U-shaped scar right over the top of my Adam's apple where my head was going back and forth and the blade was just skimming over the top of my Adam's apple. Um, he went to jail and then was eventually he was um, found not guilty by reason of insanity and sentenced to one year in the mental institution, got out and tried to kill his wife again. Um, you know, if we could just pause on the Green River story and mine just for a moment to make a point here, if, if you allow me to do that. For sure. Um, uh, you know, this is this is a. This is not an unusual thing that happens to cops um, in, in our day and time today. 
uh, they deal with this uh, incident, you know, a similar incident that I just described, but they also deal with much, much more. And uh, I, I like to uh, tell a story real quick um, that would give people pause for a moment to consider. And uh, it was a call that I went on with an undercover team to serve a search warrant. We each had our uh, assigned places that we would go. We had the floor plan. You've seen TV shows and I'm sure your listeners, if they're interested in your podcast have probably watched cop shows too. Um, so we had a plan. My assignment, I was the Sergeant at the time and my assignment was after the door was kicked in, we all go to the rooms that were assigned and mine was the bathroom. I, I peeled off to the right, kicked the bathroom door open. And I find a guy sitting on the toilet, his pants down around his ankles and uh, the, the rubber band around his bicep and the needle in his arm. So he's shooting up dope. His eyes are glazed over. I pull my gun and I'm, I'm telling him to get down on his knees and put his hands behind his head. He instead stands up and starts to laugh and smile, thinks it's funny. Uh, he finally puts his hands up, uh, but he's still standing up and his right hand disappears behind um, a half wall. So my question to your listeners, um, when do you shoot? You know, would it be when he stands up, puts his hands up and he doesn't get down, you don't shoot then, and I didn't. But when the hand disappears, you don't know what he's reaching for. Do you shoot then? But the hand came out, I didn't shoot then. The hand came out and he had a gun in his hand. Now for your listeners again, is that when you shoot? And a lot of cops would, and it would be justified, but I didn't shoot. And um, I, all he had to do was flick of the wrist, turn the gun and pull the trigger. And uh, I would have been shot probably, he would have been shot probably. But he leans back after a lot of yelling and screaming on my part <laughs> to wake him up and realize that this was not going to end well if he continued. He leaned back and he dropped the gun in the toilet and I jumped on him and handcuffed him and we both went home safely. I, I wanted to share that story because cops are doing this kind of thing every day. Their life is on the line. They've got to make those split decisions. I mean, it's just a uh, less than a second, you've got to decide, is he going to take the gun, turn his hand, pull the trigger? Uh, should I shoot him now? Should I wait? Should I tackle him? You know, all of those are things are running through your mind. So uh, I want to thank uh, all the people who are listening, who are law enforcement officers. And I also want to impress upon the listeners, please support the cops out there. They're just trying to keep your families safe, trying to keep your kids safe. Yeah, no, I, I think that's such a big thing. And I, you know, I, I definitely know that the, and obviously we're talking about this just because of the current climate with, with law enforcement. And, uh, and I know that the bulk of, of law enforcement is, is it, more than the bulk, pretty much every member of law enforcement um, is there doing the, the tough job every day. Um, so yeah, I, I think most people would agree with that, but just to, given that you, you brought it up, um, just to give you the opportunity to kind of just address the issue. What, I mean, how do you feel about, I guess, the, uh, the, the tension that is there and it is, you know, a racially motivated tension, um, with, with law enforcement. I, I think that 
regardless of whether you believe it is there or it isn't, um, it's certainly an issue at the moment. Yeah. So, I mean, the only way that you can build uh, trust is to communicate with each other, right? So um, if, if one side has decided that they're not going to talk to, to the other side, uh, to the police, if the community has decided they want to disband the police and defund the police, and have painted them all with the same brush, they're doing exactly the same thing that they're accusing the police of doing. The only way to overcome this division is for people to communicate. And it's one of the things that we did in the sheriff's office is that we were always in the communities that we served um, doing other things, helping build parks, helping kids through school. Um, you know, when I was on the task force and we would go to a home and notify the family that their daughter was found dead. Uh, one particular case, it was around Christmas and the brother of one of the victims, younger brother, uh, nine or 10 years old, had, had gotten a used bicycle for Christmas. Uh, and when we got there, uh, he was crying because it had been stolen, lived in a, in a pretty tough neighborhood. And so um, I went home and a couple of officers came over to my house the next day we found new parts for a, a bicycle I had in my garage. We repainted this bicycle, put, I mean, it looked brand new, practically was brand new, and then drove it over there in the middle of the night, put it on the front porch and uh, put his name on it and delivered that bicycle to him. And that's just one of many, 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 many stories. 99% uh, of the cops are good. Are there bad cops? Yes, I've, I've fired bad cops from the sheriff's office. Um, uh, you know, I was in the middle of the WTO riots and I fired one police, one deputy during uh, those riots uh, for his actions. So um, they're, they're, they're we, you know, the only way that we can overcome this is through communication and through caring and respecting uh, each other. Not, it's very easy to find the negative in people and I don't care. It's, you know, even in your own family, right? Uh, especially in your own family. Uh, but it's much, much harder to find the positive in each individual. And that's what we need to know. And I believe that every human being was created equally by God. I'm, I happen to be a Christian. We are all children of God and he created us equally. And we should be treated equally with respect and dignity and have uh, equality under the law. And uh, the only way, that, again, I can't emphasize this enough for, for us to overcome this divide that we have today is to begin to talk to each other. I don't really normally give a lot of opinions, but I, I think that we can all agree that, that uh, you know, finding common ground and, and uh, compromise and, and treating everyone equally is a, is a, good, uh, a good thing for sure. So if we if we could let's you know you've alluded to it a few times so let's talk a little bit about the the big thing that did happen in the the King County area while you were a police officer, um, well or, or member of the sheriff's department. This, I believe in the early '80s that uh, you know young women were were starting to be found dead, um, generally along the Green River or somewhere around there. Um, so tell us just a little bit about you know, the, the case, the, the Green River Killer case, you know, what, uh, 
what led to, to understanding that you had, you know, not just, uh, not just some, some murders, but you actually had a serial killer on your hands. Yeah. So I, uh, I, I spent about, um, four and a half, five years on, on patrol. I worked in the jail. I ended up, uh, working property crimes detective, uh, for about a year and went into homicide in early 1979. I worked a homo- as a homicide robbery detective. Um, so by 1982, um, I'd worked, uh, many homicides and, and other major crimes, uh, kidnappings and rapes and, robberies, et cetera. And I actually started working a, a prostitute murder in January of 1982. Her name was Leanne Wilcox. And uh, I thought I had a good suspect for that uh, case uh, for the murder of Leanne. We arrested him. We weren't able to, to find additional evidence and we had to release him. In July of 1982, Wendy Caulfield was found in Kent. She's the first official Green River victim. Uh, immediately when Kent uh, started to work that case, I contacted the Kent Police Department and we started to compare notes between Leanne Wilcox's case and the Wendy Caulfield case. We discovered they were cousins. Um, so we knew they we knew that they knew some of the same people. We never uh, made a connection between um, you know, who might be the person responsible for taking both of those lives, but it, lives, but it wasn't much longer, uh, until we found another body. And that was on August 12th of 1982. And that was Debbie Bonner. And that body was found in the green river in King County's jurisdiction. And that's when I was first, I was assigned that, that body. That was my, my case. Uh, and, uh, again, began to work. First, you have to identify uh, the, she was nude. She was uh, on a sandbar, her face, she was face down. She'd been there several weeks. Um, And uh, so it's, you know, it's difficult to identify people, but she did still have some tattoos that we could identify. So we, now we have uh, Leanne Wilcox, Wendy Caulfield and Debbie Bonner. Three days later on August 15th, um, a rafter is coming down the Green River, and he comes upon uh, two bodies that are pushed up against the river bank. They're under about two feet of water, and they have rocks piled on top of them. Uh, he also notices as he's floating down the river, a guy standing on the river bank, a white male, and that's all he could describe. He waves at the white male on the river bank. The, the uh, subject waves back at the uh, rafter and gets in a truck and leaves. Now that's according to the river rafter and what he saw Uh, as the river rafter, he first thought he had mannequins. He saw mannequins in the river, but then as he got closer realized, no, these are real uh, bodies um, of young girls. Uh, They were both nude. One was face down, one was face up. I got the call on Sunday afternoon for that case too. I, I arrived, began to process the scene with other detectives, and I found a third body on the riverbank, and that was Opal Mills. What we learned later in interviewing Ridgeway is that that was actually him that the river rafter saw standing on the riverbank, and that he was uh, carrying another body down to the riverbank to place them in the water with, uh, place her in the water with uh, uh, Cynthia Hines and Marcia Chapman. Um, but 
The rafter saw him and he dropped the body, left the body on the bank and drove away. I was there about an hour later and that's the closest that we would get to him um, until 19 years later. We knew that day that we had a serial killer. On August 15th, we had a meeting on the, on the banks of the river and uh, with the command staff and other detectives. And uh, we, we decided to meet on Monday and put together uh, an in-house in King County Sheriff's Office in-house task force. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, without getting too graphic, you've kind of mentioned it and there, there was, you know, a lot of victims, but generally how were, you know, the victims found like in what, what state? Yeah. Wendy Caulfield was uh, nude. Uh, she had a ligature. I think it was her pair of jeans that were around her neck. Um, Debbie Bonner was, was nude face down as I described um, Opal Mills, was on the riverbank, sort of on her side, face down with her pants, I believe, around her neck. Um, uh, she, uh, obviously she was strangled. Um, Opal Mills and Marsha Chapman were uh, nude in the river. Marsha Chapman was face up with one arm free. Cynthia Hines was face down with rocks piled on her. And the thing that I remember about that day the most was Marsha Chapman um, and her free hand uh, as she's laying in the water with rocks piled on top of her and the water, um, the river water is flowing over the top of her. Her hand had a waving motion. And to me, it almost seemed like she was waving at me saying, you know, here I am, here I am. And um, I, I helped remove both those bodies, all of those bodies um, that were in the river from the river. And I uh, remember her hand uh, slipping off into mine. Uh, she was so decomposed. And um, both of those victims had uh, pyramid shaped rocks placed inside their vagina. And um, Ridgeway explains that later when we arrest him and interview him. It has to it has to start taking a toll. I mean, I'm, I'm sure it does just in, in, you know, the in what you're saying now. So how long did this did this spree happen? I know that he was, you know, arrested 19 years later. And I want to talk kind of about it being a cold case at some point and and, you know, not uh, not being able to, to necessarily capture the person. But how long did the actual active killing last? Well, the last case that we charged him with, with occurred in 2001. Mm. So he, he was killing that entire time, but, but he slowed down uh, as he got older, which most uh, serial killers do. Um, the, we were through 1982, 83, 84, 85, 86, 88. Uh, we were, that's when we collected most of the bodies. In some weeks, we were collecting up to six, seven bodies uh, a week we were processing that many crime scenes. Uh, we, someone would find a body at a, at a site. We would begin to search the site and we would find other bodies. Uh, we'd find three femurs know that we had a, a second body somewhere. We'd find that site. Sometimes we're able to find the site where they actually decomposed. Um, uh, you can find that site because you can tell where the, where the flesh from the body decomposed into the soil. Other cases, uh, they were buried. 
uh, and a bone was dug up by a dog and we had to sort of work our way back and find the grave, uncover the, the, the remains, sift, cord, you know, uh, cordon off the, the area. Um, we would search on our hands and knees, uh, clipping blades of grass and tree branches and cutting trees down, clear cut the place to get in, make sure that we, we were collecting birds nests because we we thought that you know birds would be collecting fibers from the clothing or hair fibers, so we collected birds nests. We followed small animal trails. Uh, I followed one small animal trail in a case. Um, after we had removed some of the remains, you could see a small burrowing hole underneath the body where the body was, and I slowly opened that up and followed it and found a petrified fingertip. Uh, that petrified fingertip actually. Uh, was helped us, um, well, gave us the identity of, uh, of that young lady. So um, we collected 10,000 items of evidence over that time. Um, and I could describe other items of evidence, but we, we collected animal feces, looking for jewelry, things that couldn't be digested, you know, that were near the scene. Um, pornography, there were magazines tossed, garbage tossed in some of the areas. So um, that's how thorough we were. We had 40,000 tip sheets and 10,000 items of evidence. From what I've read, most of the victims were, well, all the victims were female and most of them were either prostitutes or runaways or things like that. Is, is that, was that the case? Yes. Uh, there were, there were some who um, were not working as what they described then. The adjectives were street prostitutes. Um, some were street people who, uh, in order to get a ride from point A to point B, would perform certain sexual acts just to get a ride somewhere. Um, they weren't were actually working as a prostitute in the human trafficking world. I, I would say that, um, you know, 95 98% of the, these little girls and young women ran away from home uh, be, because the, the home life was not uh, the best. Yeah. Uh, I always, I, I, the way I describe it is the, these are little girls, young women who were victimized at home for the most part. There are a few cases where they were not. They were victimized at home, whether it was sexual assault, domestic violence, emotional abuse, uh, physical abuse, um, they left and they were looking for someone who cared about them. And back in the seventies and the eighties, there were pimps that worked on the street. Those pimps scooped these young kids up in a heartbeat and convinced them that they cared. And uh, uh, they put them on the street. So they were victimized again by the pimps and by the people that used and abused these girls as Johns and tricks. Um, so, victimized a second time and then and then back in those days when they were arrested in the criminal and put in the criminal justice system they were victimized one more time because they were treated as criminals rather than these are little girls who need some help and uh, and so you know that's that's sort of uh, we you know the victimology i guess um you could describe it as um Related to that, I think it's important to note one of the, the, the main reason this case was so difficult to solve and took so long. Um, imagine, uh, imagine, so this is the scenario. This is how he operated. This is how 
people on the street operate uh, even in some communities uh, still today. Although most of the human trafficking takes place now uh, online where you can make your, your, uh, your deals online, there's still some activity on the street. So all Ridgeway had to do was to be a John, uh, you know, drive his truck, his car, whatever he was driving, drive his pickup truck, drive up to the curb where the girl was standing, roll down the window, have a 20 second conversation about this is what I want and this is what I'm going to pay you. She says, no, I want this. He says, okay. She hops in the truck. They drive off to a secluded place or, or in some cases, some of the girls even had motel rooms that they took their dates to, which didn't happen very often, but he, sometimes he would take them to his house, which wasn't too far off the strip, only a couple of blocks. And that's where he killed some of his victims. Guy in a car drives up, makes a deal with a gal in the street, drives away, boom, gone. And you go back. So, so the next thing that happens, of course, is if she never comes back, um, who reports her missing? Uh, the parents don't know right away because she's, she's a runaway. They may have already reported her as a runaway many, many, many times before. And then finally said, I'm not doing it anymore. Or they reported her as a runaway. We're, we're not looking for her. Uh, because she's just entered into a computer system. If we run across or run the name, then we'll know, okay, let's return her to her parents. Um, if, we, uh, if someone finds a set of remains, uh, here's an example. Um, one victim, Debbie Estes, was not found. Her body was not found until six years later. So you, you identify the body. We knew she was missing, but we didn't know she was dead. Find the body. We know she's dead. We identify the body. We notify the parents and we start working um, the case, uh, asking who her friends were, who, where she went to school, where she hung out with. A lot of times the parents don't know, but you get on the street and you find out somebody knew her. You show her some pictures. You show them some pictures on the street. Usually these little, little girls and young women had several different names, had many different names, many different birth dates. They changed their appearance. Uh, they changed addresses. Um, they were arrested, but they'd be arrested under different names or they'd go by a street name. So I'm looking for Debbie Estes, but they, somebody may know her as Star. And even if you could figure out where she was last seen, you go back to that street corner or the or two block area. Now you have to interview people six years later and try to find who was standing on that street corner, even six months later. If it's one that you found six months after she's or three months or two weeks, even you go back to that street corner. Now we're talking to we're talking to young girls who are involved in human trafficking. They don't want to talk to the cops. We're talking to pimps who definitely don't want to talk to the cops. So we had to build this rapport with the street people so they knew we were there to protect them. We weren't going to arrest them, uh, but we were going to protect them. And, uh, and by doing that, of course, we had to catch Gary Ridgeway. And uh, I talked to one young girl up on Aurora Avenue and uh, I, she gave me some information on another 16-year-old uh, uh, who was out working the street. Uh, and I warned her, stay off the street. Two weeks later, I was collecting her body in a, in a black uh, plastic garbage sack 
Uh, she was thrown in a ditch off a military road just south of Seattle. Yeah, and that's that's helpful in in learning exactly how difficult the case was and why it took so long to to solve it. Because I think that is one criticism that that some people may you know I've read out there is that you know it wasn't solved because these people were not people that were were very missed. So it wasn't something that was that big of a concern. But you've you've kind of shown that's not the case at all. No. And, and the thing too to remember is that there were hundreds of these young girls. Back then it was, you could find 10 or 15 of them standing on a street corner for, you know, for two, three, four miles. And um, so you have hundreds, thousands of Johns out there picking these girls up. You have hundreds of these girls out there working the street from morning till night. Um, and uh and with, you know, with uh, 40,000 tip sheets uh, and no computers, I think that's the other thing that should be mentioned here is that we kept track of all of this on three by five note cards. We didn't get our first computer until 1986. And in 1986, the, the first computer was called a VAX computer. And it actually was a computer that took up the space of a, of a uh, junior high school classroom. We were in an abandoned schoolroom as our command post for a while, our task force headquarters. And that computer took up the entire room. We had 20 to 25 volunteers come in when we finally got the computer, took all the hard copy documents that, uh, that, we, that we had and typed manually, typed all of these documents into the computer that computer was not able to correlate any information, however. So the only way you could get any comparisons was we had a list of people who owned pickup trucks. We had a list of people who were arrested for prostitution. We had a list of people who had fishing licenses because of the Green River. We had a list of people who owned, um, who uh, uh, assaulted, who had assaulted uh, uh, women, any women not just prostitute, but assaulted women. And so we had those lists amongst others. And so if I wanted to find out if Joe Blow was on more than one list, I had to print out and it came on a sheet about 18 inches wide with perforated holes on either side. I had to print out every pickup truck owner in the state of Washington and lay that printout file down the length of the hallway in the junior high school. And I printed out a list of everyone who was arrested for patronizing a prostitute. Then I would print out, these are detectives with me would do this, the task force detectives print out a third list. Maybe it's the one who, maybe it's the list who had fishing license. Uh, and then you'd assign two to three detectives per list with highlighters. And we'd go through and we yell out names, address, and birth dates and license plates numbers. If those appeared on another list, then we made a tip sheet. We made a file on that person and they became a suspect. I gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. That I, I couldn't even imagine, you know, I, I think that it's probably, I, I know it's hard enough trying to, to solve things like that in today's world. So going through just the, the process that you just mentioned that, that had to be a, uh, just, that had to be a, a nightmare, really. You know, you're already a, a nightmare on the streets, and then a nightmare trying to figure it all out. So, no, it was um, it was a tedious 
uh, work. Uh, we did take a lot of crit criticism, which was frustrating to us. Uh, we, you know, a lot of the detectives that worked the case had children. I have, I had three children at the time. Two of them were daughters. They were eight, nine years old when I started this case. Um, I was threatened by one of the suspects. They posted, uh, posted a note on the door of my home that he was going to kill me and my family. Uh, during this time, we had um, we had uh, patrol officers, uh, you know, surveilling and watching the house. Followed my kids to school and back for a couple of months. So this impacted my my kids are eight or nine years old, and they're wondering, Daddy, why are why are the police cars following me to school and and home again, and why are they parked out in the street, you know, watching our house? And uh, my my second oldest daughter actually had a, an escape route planned out, and I didn't find that out until many many years later when she told me told me about it. Um, I was hardly ever home uh, when when I was home, uh, and and this isn't just me; it's it's all the detectives. Um, but when I was home, I really wasn't there. Um, I was there physically, but not emotionally and not mentally. Uh, I was always thinking about this case. 24-7, trying to figure out what we could do next. I, I didn't take a vacation for a long, long time. And finally, uh, my wife said, we need to get away. So we went to Las Vegas with um, some, uh, some of our in-laws. I was there three days and got a phone call that they had found a body. And uh, I got right back on the plane and flew right back here because I didn't want to miss anything, any clue that would lead us to finding this killer. Um, you know, what's I think also important to point out is, is um, your comment is true to some degree. Um, the community sometimes didn't care because, not because they didn't care about human life, but because these girls to them were invisible. Um, and I think a lot of times we go about our daily lives you go from point A to point B. Back when we used to commute to work, uh, you'd go from home to your office, from your office back home, and you just wanted to get home. Well, people every day of every week, of every month, of every year were driving down Pacific Highway South to and from wherever, and they were driving by those girls standing on the street corner, but they, they were never seen. They were there, but they weren't. And I think for you know, the other message I'd like to leave your listeners today too is, is that we, we really need to start taking care of our children much better than we are and raising them again to respect themselves and respect others, to love and care for themselves and love and care for uh, others. Her um, goal, of course, is that they grow up in a loving, caring family and they're taught that. Um, so they don't end up on the street and become victims of a Gary Ridgeway. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you, 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 you're kind of mentioning it, but what exactly was the climate during this? You know, I know with, you know, with other serial killers, you know, the, the community were, were scared because it wasn't, you know, it wasn't necessarily transients and, and street people. It was, you know, grandmas and, and things like that. So did you really have that same thing in, in the Seattle, excuse me, Seattle area that people were really very fearful during this time, or was it not the case because, you know, it was mostly people that were, were working on the streets? No, there, there were people who were afraid. 
um, and they were afraid for their daughters. Um, even though they weren't on the street, they might go to school in the neighborhoods where all this activity was taking. They was was taking place. They they would live in the neighborhoods where they could walk to school close uh, to the areas where the bodies were found and close to the areas where uh, the victims were taken from. So um, there was a fear. Uh, it was a dark cloud that hung over uh, Washington state and for that matter, the Northwest for many years uh, until we solved the case. Um, I, I still get notes and uh, emails, et cetera, from people who say, uh, or I run into them, you know, I, I, I grew up and I was afraid. Um, so there was that fear. There was also uh, a group of people who were very, very critical, feeling again that the cops didn't care. But, um, um, you know, we, we, uh, you, you didn't very often get the opportunity to explain how much we worked or how much we did care. Um, you know, the media wasn't looking for <laughs> a story about really how, how the cops were trying to get along. Um, at one point we did have a psychologist come in, the sheriff decided we needed to have a, a session, you know, when you collect scores and scores and scores of dead bodies and different states of decomposition, especially when we're talking about, you know, girls ranging from 14, 15 years old to their early thirties. These are young women just starting out in their life with so much potential. I often think about myself as a runaway uh, with dyslexia, bad grades in high school. And, um, and people, some people would have said back in the day, uh, you know, Dave, Dave Reichert will probably end up working, doing, you know, some labor job, uh, which nothing wrong with that. But uh, no one would have ever said, I think that Dave's going to be the sheriff of the 12th largest sheriff's office in the country. Uh, I don't think anyone would have ever said, I know none of my teachers would have said, <laughs> I think Dave will, Dave's got the potential to be a U.S. congressman someday. <laughs> um, I, so when I think about what has happened in my life and how blessed I've been and how fortunate in pursuing the careers that I've had the opportunity to, to pursue, uh, I think about the potential of some of those young girls and some of those young women who, whose lives were just stolen by a monster. Yeah, no, and I think that that correlation that you gave really kind of puts into perspective because a lot of people, I'm sure at that time and, and even now would think, okay, well, these, these girls weren't really destined for, for much. And just to show, you know, you in kind of in the same, same vein where, Really, you never know what people are going to do, how people are going to turn their life around. So that's not really, a, a, I guess, a, a fair, fair assessment to make on, on anyone. So I, I, I really like that, that correlation for sure. So yeah. the, the, you know, the, the next question I kind of want to ask is you know, about you know, eventually capturing you know, Gary Ridgway. Um, before I, you know, I ask exactly how that happened, if you could just kind of give us a little bit of, about, you know, him in, in that 20 years, because, you know, I think that the, the big thing to point out is you really never know exactly what, you know, th there's not a, a one size fits all for people who do 
wind up being serial killers. I think, you know, Gary Ridgway was able to, to hide in regular society pretty, pretty well. It wasn't like he was some outcast, you know, living in, in, a, in a cellar, so to speak. So if you could tell us just a little bit about, you know, his life um, and then also how the, the capture finally happened. Well, you know, as we started to uh, collect bodies and, and uh, um, realize, of course, that, that we had a serial killer, we immediately contacted the FBI uh, profiling unit. We had um, them profile the victims. We've talked about that. We had him, uh, John Douglas, um, so John came out, John Douglas, you may know is the, the author of the mind hunter and the spinoff TV series, the mind hunter. So John Douglas and I spoke quite often in the eighties and, um, came out to visit, you know, I took him out to the scenes. We looked at the scenes. He gave us the profile, um, along with his teammates. And, uh, a lot of the things were correct, but you know, it's just a, it's a tool. Um, it's, it's, it's not a science and, uh, we had other psychologists come in and do profiling uh, and they had a lot of similar things to say about what, uh, what our killer would be like. Every serial killer is different. They may have some similar characteristics to other serial killers, but the one that seems to be the most consistent is that he is, a, they, they're psychopaths. Um, they, they, uh, in Ridgeway's pathological liar, he, he has no remorse uh, at all for anything that he has done. Uh, no remorse for any of the young girls that he killed. Um, he doesn't feel bad about it. One iota, Zippo. Uh, he feel more guilty about stealing a hubcap uh, than taking the life of, of one of these little girls. He, um, when we arrested him, he was in his third marriage. It had been for 13 years. She's since divorced him after the arrest. Um, the other two were smart enough to get get out of the marriage, realized that there was something not quite right. Uh, he spent some time in the Navy. Um, but before that, he, he, you know, his relationship with his mother, um, most often we come back to that with, with serial killers. There is some sort of a relationship that doesn't seem exactly uh, correct between the serial killer and his mother. Uh, his mother uh, used to sunbathe in the nude in the backyard. Um, she used to wash him, uh, bathe him until he was in his teenage years, paying attention to, to specific parts of his body. So he began to be attracted to his mother in a sexual way, thought about raping his mother, thought about then killing his mother because he found out that she was sort of flirtatious in the job that she held, at least according to his definition. So he was pissed off at his, at his mother, um, and uh, I th think uh, he had a couple of breakups. And so he, he started to uh, really have a low opinion, obviously, of women and began to date prostitutes and then began to take their life. It wasn't all their lives. It wasn't all about, uh, it wasn't about the sex. It was all about power. Uh, sex was involved, but a lot of times uh, uh, the, the ones that we had a couple that escaped um, insulted him for his um, uh, inability to perform. And, um, and he actually mentioned that in the interview that he was insulted by, I forget which, uh, which of the victims, but it's one of the reasons she got killed. Um, 
but he would, he would usually try and have sex with them. He would have sex from behind. Uh, and so he could grab him around the neck with his arm and choke him with his forearm. And then he would, he would either dump the body or bury the body. Um, he placed rocks in the vaginas of three of the victims. Two were in the river. One was off of um, the uh, Pacific Highway South uh, Strip, as they call it. Um, we asked him about those rocks, and he said they were placed there that's so that no one else could have sex with his um, girlfriends. And um, he uh, he had sex with the dead bodies. We know that. On one occasion, uh, we well, we did ask him, well, "What do you do about the maggots?" And he said, "Well, we just I just brush them aside." Um, he uh, one morning went to work early, told his wife, "Look, I'm 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 going to work uh, early. It's none of your business. Why coming home late? That's not your business either." She's a very insecure woman, so she was just happy to have a nice home and a husband who had a job and was putting food on the table for her and their son. And um, uh, anyway, this particular morning, he drove off to work. He stopped, picked up a prostitute, had sex with her, killed, excuse me, killed her in the back of his truck. He had a canopy over the uh, bed of the truck, pickup truck. Drove to work, worked four hours on his lunch break, got in his truck, drove to a secluded place, got in the back of the truck, had sex with a dead body, drove back to work, parked his car, went in and finished his eight hour shift at the end of work, drove his truck uh, home, stopped on the way, had sex with the body, uh, buried the body, drove home, had dinner and watched TV with his wife. Um, so this is the kind of person that, that, you're, that you're dealing with, you know, and it's, it's um, uh, at one point, you know, you're trying to, you, as a homicide detective, you, you try to put yourself in the place of the killer, uh, but it, that's, easier to do if you're talking about a murder, you know, uh, that's, that's committed as a result of some passion, you know, anger, jealousy, you know, whatever, but do you have a stranger to stranger, uh, killing more than one, obviously, uh, we're talking, we think somewhere between 60 and 70, he pled guilty to 49. We cleared, cleared 51 cases, closed 51 cases. The other two, we didn't quite have enough to charge him with. So um, he, he uh, yeah, so he, uh, he was continuing to kill. Um, and um, we, uh, during the uh, 80s, in 1982, uh, the bodies in the river were examined. They were the only bodies really that were intact enough, except for one other, Carol Christensen who was found later, were intact enough for us, the medical examiner's office, to extract biological uh, evidence. So spermatozoa was discovered in three of the victims. That was collected and frozen. In 1987, Ridgeway became a suspect uh, for a number of different reasons. And um, we, he was arrested for prostitution early on. We had a, a victim that had escaped from him. And um, we were, had enough probable cause to get a search warrant for his house, for his locker at work, and for bodily fluids. We weren't allowed to take a blood sample, but the judge allowed us to have him chew on a gauze. We chewed, we, uh, he chewed on the gauze, 
we froze the gauze um, and we were only back in the 80s looking for a blood type. DNA science was nowhere near ready to do what we needed it to do. Um, and uh, that was mitochondrial uh, examination of the saliva and the spermatozoa uh, and work up a DNA profile. So um, we, we continued collecting bodies and um, by 1999, the science had gotten to the point where it was progressive, had progressed to the point where we took our samples to a, uh, there were two labs on the East Coast. We took our samples to one of those labs. They said, your samples are too degraded and too small. We, we don't want to destroy them. Yeah, you should wait to have these examined. So we did. 2001, March, the state lab called us and said, we can do this now, bring your samples up. We brought them up. They looked at them in March of 2001 and September of September of 2001, um, Detective Tom Jensen and Chief Faye Brooks, who were in the major crimes unit at the time, came in, um, wanted to meet with me, came into my office and said, we have some great news for you. They laid out three sheets of paper. One was one uh, was a crudely drawn DNA graph. The second was also a crudely drawn DNA graph. They matched. The third piece of paper was another crudely drawn DNA map, the DNA profile. They matched. And the third one had the title of Green River Killer on top of it. So whoever belonged to that name. Uh, was at least responsible for the two uh, victims that we were talking about. Um, I looked at Tom and Faye and I said, hey, are you trying to tell me that we caught the guy? And Tom just smiled and pulled out an envelope and handed it to me. And he said, yeah, and his name is in here. And I said, I don't even need to look at it. It's Gary Ridgway. And he looked at me and I opened it up and say, it was a mugshot of Gary Ridgway when he was arrested in 1982, before all the bodies started to be uh, to be found, so um, we put him under surveillance and knew we had a lot of work to do. Right, uh, I created a uh, when I when I was the sheriff, um, so we put him under surveillance uh, for two months. He hit on our one of our decoys, our, our female decoys. And that's when we decided we needed to arrest him because we lost him. We didn't want someone else to be killed while we, you know, we were trying to watch him. So we, we arrested him. We surrounded uh, Kenworth Trucking. We had undercover cops inside the trucking company, um, the assembly line and the paint shop. When he walked outside, we had an SUV that drove up. Uh, the detectives jumped out and said, hey, uh, are you Gary Ridgway? We knew he was, of course, but we asked the question. He said, yes. We said, you're under um, arrest for the murder of four women. And he said, okay, and hand them, handed them the lunch bucket and got in the van. And, and it came to the, the regional the criminal justice center, was interviewed, asked for an attorney. The attorney shows up. I let them talk for about an hour. And, um, and then I finally said, that's enough of that. We, we're going home. We're tired. So uh, we went and ended that conversation. And as he walked past me, I looked at him and I just, I couldn't help myself. You know, after so many years, I just looked at him and said, gotcha, asshole. Then what, what happened next is that we, we made three other cases on him. 
I should back up just a little bit when I became, you know, and, and we, we kind of skipped over this part in, um, in 1988, they started dis to disband the task force. And by 1990, there were only three of us left. And they did that because they couldn't, it was costing $2 million a year. And I say, so what? I mean, we're talking about, you know, scores and scores of dead little girls. Uh, it shouldn't be about the money, but it was for the politicians. They closed down the task force as a result of, of uh, financial problems. And, and secondly, they had no faith that we would solve this case. And, uh, and so they just said, well, you know, you've got some good suspects, but uh, it's not going to get solved. Uh, I always believed it would be solved 100%. Never, I never wavered. Uh, I knew we, we would get this guy. And uh, so in 1990, Tom Jensen and, and uh, Detective Bill uh, Jim Doyen went to major crimes. They were reassigned the last three detectives. I was fortunate to be promoted. I went to the precinct area where the victims were missing from and where the bodies were found. So I spent a lot of my graveyard shift driving through those areas, looking for uh, the killer and patrolling those areas where the bodies were found. I was promoted rather quickly. Um, I went to from Lieutenant to captain. I was the SWAT commander for three years. I went to precinct commander. Uh, the voters decided to go to an elected sheriff. I was recruited to run. I was appointed sheriff in 1997, March. I, I reopened the case as soon as I could. And uh, I, I, I formed a, a task force of five people, which I called the evidence review team. And as a part of that review, we knew we had the spermatozoa and the gauze, uh, but we also looked at uh, anywhere, you know, for fingerprints on magazines, pornographic uh, magazines. One of the things that we really looked at that helped Ridgeway get to the place and his attorneys get to the place where they needed to be as far as wanting to make a deal was uh, paint evidence. And real quickly, I'll, I'll share with you that these three, this is an amazing story. These three items of clothing still containing forensic, microscopic forensic evidence. The ligature that I mentioned that was around Wendy Caulfield's neck um, in the river contained uh, under examination microscopic paint spheres. So Ridgeway was a truck painter at Kenworth Trucking. And when he painted, these spheres would you know, float all over the place and they landed on his, um, on his coveralls, on his clothing. He transferred that to, when, to uh, uh, Wendy Caulfield's ligature. Um, the second piece, uh, was a blouse that was found uh, about a mile downstream from Cynthia Hines. It was Cynthia Hines's blouse, and it was thrown out of the truck as Ridgeway drove away. We found that as we searched uh, shoulder to shoulder, hands and knees, we found that blouse. We took that blouse and kept it. Even though it was far away from the scene, we kept that blouse, and on that blouse were found microscopic paint spheres. The third piece is even more amazing. Um, Debbie Estes was buried. She, her body wasn't found for six years. The clothing that she was buried with decomposed, obviously. That clothing um, was so 
uh, fragile that when you tried to pick it up, it just would float and crumble in your hands. But we were able to collect some of those fibers. On those fibers, we found microscopic, the lab did, found microscopic paint spheres. Those paint spheres that were found on those three items of clothing were compared to Gary Ridgway's coveralls that we took in 1987. Now, you, you probably read a lot about, you know, a lot of murder cases where in some cases they can't even find the damn gun that killed the person, right? They, they've, lost the, they've lost the evidence. We had 10,000 items of evidence. We were able to find every one of those when the attorneys asked for discovery. And when they got those three paint cases along with the four DNA cases, they decided, you know what? Uh, Ridgway said, I just want to save my life. That's, he's, a, he's a coward, you know, it's all about him. So he wanted to make a plea deal. I'll give you 60 to 70 uh, cases. I'll plead guilty to 60 to 70. I'll take you to some places where there are bodies that you haven't recovered yet, which he did. And uh, for in exchange for uh, not applying the death penalty. You know, I, I know that you yourself, um, at least I, I've seen, you know, the pictures of you in, in the room with him. You know, it, it did take you know, so long to, to, to solve this and something that, you know, obviously ruined, you know, vacations and ruined your home life for so long. So what was it like actually being face to face in that room with, with, you know, the, the person that you had been, you'd been, I guess, playing cat and mouse with for so long. Yeah. He, he uh, is about my age, uh, graduated from high school um, just across the Valley from me, you know, so you couldn't have two different, more different personalities, almost in the same community, growing up almost at the same time, you know. Um, and when we caught him um, and he finally said, hey, I want to make a deal. Uh, and uh, we interrogated him for six months and he never complained, never once got tired, never said, and I mean, went on for hours. We could interview him for 10, 12 hours. He never wanted to stop for a water, although we did. His attorneys were always in the room with him. He had eight attorneys. There were always at least two or three with him. Um, we were the ones that had to stop and say, hey, you know, we need to eat lunch and you should eat lunch too. Um, he was just he really intense and into talking about these cases, even though he tried to mislead us. And we had, it was like pulling teeth to get anything out of him. What we had set up was an interview room with cameras. We had two detectives uh, at a time go in. We had a team of four that switched off and on. Every now and then we'd throw him a different loop. We'd throw in a different detective. Um, he, he was, he's a prejudiced person. So we, we would, uh, we asked uh, African-American detectives, female and male to go in, shake him up a little bit, piss him off, and then put the other investigators back in. And we'd used all kinds of tricks that were um, you know, that we thought of ourselves to get him to, to, to clear his mind and start cooperating with us. Um, we had two other rooms set up where um, I spent, I was there for every interview and I sat in the offices with the other detectives that were involved in the case. And we could type, we could see the interview through, through the cameras from the interview room. We could hear the answers and the questions. And uh, since I've been at to, to every one of the, the crime scenes, um, uh, I thought it was important for me to be there too. And I wanted to be there. I would type in a question and send it in to, 
uh, the detectives who were actually doing the interview. Although I really wanted to be in there, uh, I couldn't be there. And although I really wanted to be the guy that placed the cuffs on him, I couldn't because now I was the sheriff. And, you know, when you have, you've got 1,200 employees, you're not the detective anymore. You're running the organization. So um, it was good and bad. I was, a, I was the sheriff. I, I opened up the case uh, again, but I, I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't do some of the things that I, I wanted to get done. So, um, you know, we, some people ask the question, why, why did you make a deal with Ridgeway? Why didn't you go? If anybody deserved to die, this guy did. And, you know, we had some choices to make. And all the, de all the detectives were unanimous in this. And we talked to the prosecutor's office and actually had to convince them that we wanted to do this. That was the right thing to do because you could go to trial and he'd be found not guilty. There's always that possibility. Uh, you could go to trial, he'd be found guilty. And the jury would say, well, um, we, we want to, we, we're, we're going to sentence him um, to life in prison. And um, so when you go through that, that phase um, where the jury is the penalty phase, where the jury decides so he could be found guilty, you go through the penalty phase, it just takes one juror to say, um, I can't do it. I can't put anybody to death, no matter how rotten they are. And so he's doing life in prison anyway. And he, there's no way he was going to talk to us. So, uh, because if they voted, and the second, the third piece was if they, if they said, okay, we'll put him to death. But what happened then is that appeal after appeal after appeal would be, would be filed by his lawyers, and he, he would live for another forty years, you know, if, if he was healthy enough, uh, through all the appeals, and he wouldn't talk to us. So we figured the, the best way to get the answers to the questions that the families wanted, there were seven families that knew through the physical evidence, right? Seven cases that we charged. The other 42 families needed to know, um, you know, is this the guy that killed my daughter and why did he kill her? Uh, we, able, we were able to answer the question, yes, he is the guy that killed your daughter. We got a confession and his confession matched with the facts that we had around the case. The, the second question, why, was tougher. We asked him why he killed and he said, because I could. He, he tried to in court, fake like he was, you know, all emotional and everything, uh, but he was really emotional and upset and crying because he got caught, not because he killed anybody. Yeah. And did he, I mean, did he, you, you talked about it could be 70 or 80 cases and, and 47 of them he confessed to, did he remember all of them and knew the details and something that he had like, I guess, cherished or was it just so many, it didn't even really phase him. He didn't know the details anymore. Yeah. So he played guilty to 40, actually 49. 49. And we closed 51 and we think somewhere between 60 and 70 and, and, and there were some that he remembered more clearly than others. Um, the, the, one of the things we, we had to do was to, to say, okay, we're going to take a field trip today. You're, you said you, you killed Mary West, for example. And uh, he said, yes. So we said, okay, take us to where you put her body. And so um, he was put in a van, shackled and handcuffed and belly chained and uh, with several detectives and 
he would direct them um, where to turn, how to get there. And I was in a car following with the, the commander of the task force. And um, on, on several occasions, and especially I remember Mary West, he directed the detective who was driving exactly to the spot where he put that body. No one would know exactly where that body was. They, they would say, oh yeah, it's in, you know, it's in this area. But when I was there, when the body was found, Mary West's body, I had a hundred people, detectives and volunteers and in, in to search this wooded area where um, her body had decomposed and to figure out which path that he may have taken in. I identified three different pathways that he could have taken, but there was one that I said, you know what, this is the one, I'm pretty certain this is the one that he used to go in. And so myself and two other detectives processed that scene all the way into the site where her body had decomposed and we sifted that site. Gary Ridgway stopped that van, told the driver to stop that van right at the trailhead of that pathway and said, I took her right in this path and she's in there about 25 feet. Hmm. And it gave me, it gave me goosebumps. And I had to, I mean, I, re, I was back there again and uh, I had to get out of the car and walk in there. Uh, the memories of her and the way she was in, in the grave, um, you know, you, you just don't, and then being there with him, uh, it's just uh, a feeling that you can't describe. And, and I mentioned earlier, you know, trying to earlier, trying to get into the mind of these guys is, is impossible. Um, I wanted to mention real quickly, we, Bob Keppel and I, Bob Keppel is the detective who was the lead detective on the Ted Bundy cases, uh, also a King County detective. And um, Bob um, just passed away. Uh, Bob and I flew to Florida, Stark Prison in Florida, and interviewed Ted Bundy for about two and a half days. And uh, the reason we did that is that he wrote us a letter and said, hey, I think I can help you get into the mind of the river man. That's who he called the Greenery Killer, was the river man. Bob Keppel wrote a book called The River Man. And uh, Ted Bundy talked about, here's what your river man will do. He'll go back to the scene. He'll have sex with the dead bodies. He'll frequent uh, porno por pornographic uh, theaters. Ridgeway never did that, third one. Um, he'll take souvenirs. He'll, you know, so Ridge, so Bundy is always talking in the third person and what he was really doing was describing what he did to his victims. So we, you know, we sort of, he, and, he, and he said, just, you know, come on down, talk to me, just really understand that I have an expertise in understanding the mind of a serial killer. You know, don't ask me why, just know that I do. Well, of course we know why. So yeah. interviewing both of those guys was like looking in the, into the eyes of the, of the devil, pure evil. Yeah. So did you, because I, I've seen a picture of you like face to face. So did you ever interview or interrogate Gary Ridgway? I know you oh, said yes. that you were in the other room, but. Yeah, yeah. At the end, when we finally, at the six months, and we finally had gotten to the point where we thought, okay, this is what we're all we're going to get out of him. Um, they did, we all decided, okay, let's, let's give the sheriff a shot at this guy. And I had to have my, my uh, two cents worth, right? Because I'd been working this thing for so long. So uh, I decided to, to go in there and sort of bedazzle him with, with all of the, 
the uh, the gold stars and the and the valor awards and the badges and all that kind of stuff, you know, and maybe shake him up just a little bit. But yes, I am. I, I interviewed him for um, a little over two days. Last question I want to I want to ask about this whole Green River thing is more kind of a personal one to you, because you you talked about starting in the sheriff's department in the early seventies. You moved up to sheriff. You were sheriff from nineteen ninety seven to two thousand and five. You know, obviously it took up a, a good chunk of your your law enforcement career, but at the same time, do you kind of dislike or hate that everyone wants to just talk about this one Green River case and, and not really talk about the rest of your your 40 year career or not? Because I know a lot of times when, you know, people like this is a bad analogy, but, you know, people who have a uh, one hit wonder, you know, they have one song, everyone wants to just talk about that. And a lot of times they're like, you know, I have a, a lot more than just this one thing. So does that ever frustrate you? Uh, no, I, I understand why people want to talk about it. Um, I'm not an expert in serial killers. I'm an expert in Gary Ridgeway. I'm an expert in the Green River case. That's, you know, that's it. I, I was a cop for 33 years. I was a member of Congress for 14 um, I just uh, recently uh, stopped working on my last job that I, I uh, had been doing for two and a half years. I was working in Central America uh, on human trafficking in Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras, Costa Rica, and Panama. Um, I may go back to that uh, if they start to travel again. Most of it was on Zoom, and I, I, I got sort of tired of the, the Zoom meetings. <laughs> I need to have some uh, action uh, that's how you can help people is by being there. So um, it's it's interesting though that you know when people ask me about Green River, they, I usually get questions about um, being stabbed because it's in it's in the book. Um, I usually get questions about my childhood. You know those those are stories people ask about. They I I like to tell the you know, the truth about my background, uh, about the domestic violence, about the rough neighborhood that I grew up in, uh, because I use that as, you know, I, I believe it's an inspiration, hopefully for other kids who've sort of been in a similar situation that I, and speeches that I used to give, if I can grow up and be a cop, I mean, I was so excited just to be a sheriff's deputy, uh, but then I can grow up and be promoted through the ranks. Um, and I had some rejections <laughs> through my career, didn't all go smoothly. Uh, and then to all of a sudden be the sheriff and then to go to Congress. If I can do that, you can do anything. Uh, if I can do that from where I came from, you can do anything. And when I was in Congress, my goal was to carry on my work. I, I did a lot of work uh, with legislation on human trafficking, I did a lot of work with legislation on new in, uh, new DNA science. Did a lot of work on foster care and helping in helping kids. I mean, that's been my focus my whole life. Um, I also was the the chairman of the trade uh, subcommittee on the Ways and Means Committee, where I worked with Paul Ryan and and some others. So, I mean, if I was just handed these things in the sheriff's office. Um, I, I can, I can, I can guarantee you that when I got to Congress, they don't just hand stuff to you. <laughs> you, yeah. Have, yeah. you have to work for it. 
So I do want to I do want to ask you if people want to connect with you, find your book, please do plug the book, tell how they can connect with you. And if you would just briefly tell us kind of what you're you're up to these days. Uh, well, they can buy the book on online at, at Barnes and Nobles or Amazon. Um, it's called Chasing the Devil. I don't make any money on the book. It all goes to charity. Uh, it goes to the Pediatric Interim Care Center in Kent, uh, which uh, they take care of drug addicted babies. So their first patient at the Pediatric Interim Care Center was the baby of Kelly McGinnis. Kelly McGinnis was one of the Green River victims. So uh, there's a special uh, connection there. And that's the reason I wrote the book was to raise money to help them do their job and helping to um, get babies into a, a drug addicted babies off drugs and into a loving caring home. Uh, I don't do Facebook. Um, I still have people who, um, <laughs> who from the other uh, party or even from the far right, like to contact me and tell me that I, you know, made some votes that they didn't like. So um, I don't, I don't, I don't do any of the let's connect stuff. I gotcha. Very good. Very good. Well, I've really appreciated your time. It's been a, a pleasure speaking with you kind of hearing about a, a topic that I don't think a lot of people have any experience with. So I really appreciate it. Yep. Hey, thank you. Thanks for having me back. And that was my interview with Dave Reichert. Hope you learned a lot from that. It was just a, and it was really an honor to speak with him. He's done so much in his life. You know, he's overcome so much and done some really amazing things, whether it be in Congress, whether it be as the sheriff, whether it uh, be in, in capturing the Green River Killer. I hope that uh, you learned a lot. I hope that it was interesting. I hope I did the uh, the story justice. You know, I wanted to be as respectful of him, as respectful as I could of the victims. Um, and but I wanted to just to hear the, as much of the the story as possible. You know, this is this is not a true crime podcast, so I I don't necessarily have that uh, you know that background in in getting all the the details and the crime procedural details and things like that. Um, but uh, I hope uh, hope you learned a lot. You know, I, I, I do hope that uh, it was, it, it's such a strange thing when we talk about true crime because at the end of the day, it's entertaining to listen to, but we still have to be really respectful of those who, who um, suffered and those who died. So I do hope, you know, I keep wanting to say I hope you enjoyed the episode. I do hope that you enjoyed hearing um, how the Green River Killer was captured. Uh, it, was a, it was an interesting thing to you. And, uh, and you hear just the, the, this perspective from the, the police. I've heard a lot of, of uh, different podcasts on the Green River Killer. And, you know, a lot of times people talk about how the police took so long to solve it, how it was, you know, street people, and that's why they weren't as worried. I think that you'll hear in this episode that that's not the case. It was, it was a challenging time without DNA, um, without the ability of computers, and the police did absolutely everything they could. They took it home, more than took it home at night. You know, they, they lived the case. So I hope that you do hear that, uh, that perspective and, and hear just a little bit uh, more and understand just a little bit more. 
the other thing I want to mention is, you know, we didn't talk a ton about the second part of uh, of uh, Dave Riker's career, which is a huge part, being the sheriff and being a member of Congress for over a decade. Um, you know, I, I wanted to focus this episode on the Green River Killer, his time doing that. You know, with when it comes to Congress and all that, you can look at, at Dave Riker's record. I think that he was a, a fairly down the down the middle um, kind of congressman, and I think in today's world that's a little bit of a a, a, a outlier. And I think that maybe maybe I'm not going to put words in his mouth, but I think maybe that's that's why he's he uh, decided to step away and retire from that. Didn't want to get into the politics of all that, um, so um, we just kind of focused on the Green River Killer. But uh, thanks for being here. I hope to see you next week. This is your first episode. Go check out you know the the fifty plus other episodes with a lot of really interesting people. Have someone on every week from from very different backgrounds. Definitely not always all this serious. A lot of ones are just purely entertainment. But uh, happy you're here. Like I said, check out those past episodes. Rate the podcast. Subscribe. Follow whatever you do there. We're on Instagram, Not Enough Podcast, on Facebook, Not Enough with Jackson Huff, jacksonhuff.com. Glad you're here this week. Really appreciate Dave Reichert's time, and take it away, Chris. This has been Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff. Thank you for listening. Be sure to join us next time, where we will interview another amazing guest who is sure to make you laugh or make you think, or, hey, maybe even both. But until then, keep being awesome.